thank you all very much <laughs> for coming. Uh, we may have a few more that will join us, but uh, you've you, you've been here, so we should make a, we should make a start. Um, as you know, this is a this is a session where the whole accumulated wisdom <laughs> of these people who teach politics in uh, Birkbeck here are going to be put at your service in telling you what's going to happen in the election. They're all absolutely certain about what's happening. They understand precisely all the processes involved. They know exactly what the outcomes are going to be. Uh, they're going to explain it all to you, give you their... Um, well, I mean, to call the predictions would be an understatement. Um, they're projections, we should really call them. They're going to do it five minutes each. I'm Tony Wright, by the way. Um, I, I don't claim this expertise, but uh, I did used to be a member of parliament. In fact, I was a candidate in five elections, four of which I won. Uh, and what a relief it is not to be doing it anymore. Uh, particularly, this, particularly, uh, particularly this one. Um, people say, I happened to see some, one of the people who presents Newsnight the other day, and she said, um, she said, gosh, isn't it exciting? And I had to say, I had to say that I thought it was the least exciting election I'd ever experienced. Um, I mean, it's it's exciting in the sense that it is uh, the, the outcome is more unpredictable than before. The fragmentation of party is more. Uh, but therefore, that makes it all sort of objectively interesting. But is it interesting as an election? It seems to me to be profoundly boring. Um, I've never known an election where there's less sort of pizzazz about it. We don't have meet We don't have public meetings anymore. Politicians go around in hermetically sealed uh, things with their own supporters, <coughs> either 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 putting their hands in paint in nurseries, or putting hard hats on and going around the remaining factories that we. Uh, that we that we have they must never meet never meet the public um, public meetings don't don't happen in the way that they they did it seems to and, and people seem to be there are no posters around uh, the place no billboards none of the usual stuff that goes on so on the one hand it seems to me that you've got an election which is yes interesting terribly interesting to media people fascinating to political scientists <coughs> Uh, wonderful for historians, but actually not very interesting for people uh, who are taking part in it, as evidenced by the fact that it seems to me that nobody wants anybody to win. <laughs> um, that is the only certain thing that seems to be the case. Um, but there it is. It all, it's all very, uh, in that sense, uncertain, and we're going to try and throw some, uh, some light on that. And so what's going to happen is uh, these five people, uh, Rosie Campbell, uh, who knows about electoral behaviour and much else but electoral behaviour, Diana Cool, who knows about many things but is going to talk about the Greens, um, uh, Jace, Jason Edwards, who, who um, again knows about many things but on this occasion is going to talk about Scotland, Ben Worthy, who knows about things like freedom of information and things like that, but also knows about new media. Uh, he's going to talk about the role of the internet, I think, in the election. And Eric Kaufman, who is an expert on uh, immigration, immigration and politics, and UKIP, uh, is going to talk about UKIP uh, and all that stuff. 
And I think they're all going to round off by telling you what they think is. Aren't you going to round off telling you what's going to happen? So we're going to tell you about this stuff and then tell you at the end, each do five minutes, at the end of their little bit, say what they think is going to happen. And then we can have a sort of discussion afterwards and Rosie's going to start. Okay, thank you. In five minutes, you're going to tell me to shut up if I waffle on too long. Well, I'm sure you're so organised that you'll do precisely five minutes. Let's see. Um, I think Tony's um, introduction was completely false. Um, people like Tony, politicians and um, journalists know an awful lot more about what's going on in the on the ground in individual constituencies than I think probably any of the um, five of us do. And I suppose what we can offer as academics is often a lot of very detailed knowledge about quite a small silo of information and draw on that and see how that's relevant to the broader picture. So I know that at the moment I'm terrified that um, I'm supposed to be on ITV in the morning after the election and they keep testing me with constituencies and I keep going, Theresa May, Maidenhead, oh, and they just know this stuff. You know, it's, it's so, I, I don't feel that we are the font of all wisdom on this at all. I think there are some things to say that um, political behaviour and the study of political behaviour could contribute. And one of them um, relates to what Tony was saying about the nature of this campaign, particularly and the lack of public meetings, which I think is something that although journalists are very excited about what is going to happen after the election, what is the government going to look like, I think they're also frustrated that there aren't more um, unexpected eggs being thrown or people being shouted at by random members of the voting public. Um, and obviously, politicians are avoiding the direct contact largely because we don't tend to remember when it goes well. We've all seen countless photos of politicians with babies. It doesn't tend to motivate us to participate. But we do remember Gillian Duffy. And I, I think that's one of the reasons they avoid it. I think the other is that in the past, if you wanted to have face-to-face -face contact with voters, you probably did have to go out and meet and greet them. These days they use sites like Mumsnet to have online direct chats and I think that that kind of activity has always been about reaching certain individuals who might then talk, to, they, they would um, diffuse the message through their social networks. I know at the last election it was all about Mumsnet and the, the kind of women who are on Mumsnet will then go to the schools gate and share. Well this can be done, I'm sure Ben will talk about this um, remotely now, so it doesn't make for good images in the media and I think it really does matter in terms of people's experience of the election on the ground as if we look at the lowest turnout in British general elections in 2001 at 59 cent actually went up to 65 percent in 2010 largely because the election was closer and people are more likely to go out and vote if they think that their vote might count but then we look at Scotland and the Scottish referendum and we have a, refer a, a participation you know, turnout at 85%. And I, to me, that shows that the British or at least the Scottish public are not as disaffected as we might believe. There is something about what's going on in politics that is actually um, is not motivating people to participate. And we know that one of the things that happened in the Scottish referendum campaign is that the Yes campaign was very active on the ground, grassroots level, lots of face-to-face -face meetings. And if we think of, uh, back to Obama's successes in America, although um, social media was used to recruit and activate people, a lot of the activity on the ground was face-to-face. -face. And I think that is that face-to-face -face communication that we human be beings still appreciate and value. And I do agree with Tony that, that that seems to be missing from the campaign, at least um, outside of Scotland. So 
It seems like a very interesting, um, an interesting election from a cephalogical point of view. And I think that's because of a long-term trends that we've all been aware of, but we haven't really thought through the full implications, or at least they haven't manifested themselves until now. In 1970, 89% of voters voted either Conservative or Labour. In 2010, that figure was down to 65%. But we only saw, we still were managing to fudge it, treating it almost as a two-stroke, three-party system, because the Liberal Democrats were the third largest party, and that remaining 35%, a large proportion of it, at least in England, went to the Liberal Democrats. And I think what's happened this time is that the Liberal Democrats have hemorrhaged support, both in um, Scotland and the rest of the UK, and also the aftermath of the referendum means that the SNP has had an absolute surge of support. And so without the two-party vote share, necessarily, I'm sure it might decline a few percentage points, but not necessarily dramatically falling off, we move from a two-three-party system to a system where actually having seven parties is, is considered to be um, the minimum we ought to include in, in sensible discussion. Um, and so I think that is, it's made us pay attention to the consequences of um, partisan dealignment, as it's been known. So historically in Britain, people were very much, you know, the overwhelming majority of people said, I'm a Labour supporter, I'm a Conservative supporter, and they know it in their heart, and occasionally they might vacillate because of one particular election, but that was the sense, and we know that that sense of partisan identification has declined over time. And um, Patrick Dunleavy at the LSE just published a, a blog today called um, Diverger's Law is Dead. And he said, you know, political science doesn't have many laws, and now we've lost one of the few we had. Mm -hmm. It's very sad for us political scientists. And Diverger's Law says that in a majoritarian electoral system like the UK, there will be a natural tendency to move towards two parties, like the UK historically, and like the US now. Um, what's interesting is that the voters have rejected that despite the political system. So in spite of the fact that the political system inflates support for these larger parties, um, they get a disproportionate number of seats compared to votes, um, even so the smaller parties are actually now gaining ground. Um, and I think it's interesting that if you've been teaching British politics for quite some time, um, we've always talked about how the Liberal Democrats suffer under the current electoral system as a third party, um, that they are coming in second and third place in constituencies and not winning many constituencies. What's interesting about this election is I think that what actually might benefit the Liberal Democrats is the nature of the system, because they're very good at digging in in particular local areas. And so UKIP, who've actually got quite diffuse support, um, at least they've got a fairly even spread across the country, may only get one or two seats, whereas UKIP, who may not be very much ahead of them, if at all, in the polls, may well come back with 27-plus seats because they have got this um, relationship on the ground. And I think that's interesting how historically they've been fighting for PR. Maybe they might realise it wouldn't do them any good. I don't know. Um, and I think that takes me to thinking a bit about the electoral system. Now, I know that we all feel that the electoral, that it's unlikely we're going to see electoral reform anytime soon, given that the AV referendum was such a disaster. And yet we seem to have got a multi-party system squeezed into a two-party electoral system. Um, and I can't see how we can continue, if elections continue to perform as they are now, how we can continue with the electoral system that we have. And so I wonder whether there will be a groundswell of demand for a genuine um, change because AV wasn't even AV plus it was just another majoritarian system it's rather hard to get anyone behind it and I think that takes me to a, another issue about 
I've got, can I have to be two more minutes? One minute. One. One. Russell Brand. <laughs> so we all know young people much less likely to vote, much less engaged in politics. There are people like Russell Brand saying don't vote. And one of the things that I think is very frustrating is they may be getting interested. We know that young people are more likely to vote green, for example. They're more likely to buy idealistic in their politics. But actually, unless you live in a marginal constituency, if someone sits down to you and explains how the system works, you would be quite rational to realise, you know what, it doesn't make any sense for me to vote. And I think that's a frustration in the system that we are, that the turnout amongst young people is dropping off to incredibly low rates. And yet, if we want to try and encourage them to participate, we can't very easily do it from a rational perspective. And just a couple of words on gender, because I can't ignore that. Um, it looks like, at least looking at the polls at the moment, that the Labour Party is going to have quite a reasonable gender gap amongst women, mirroring the gender gap they have in the States. So New Labour had an advantage amongst um, professional women, women with children who were in, in middle and higher income jobs. And the Conservatives under David Cameron eradicated that advantage, um, I think largely because he really talked about work-life balance, getting more women into the House of Commons. What looks like it's happening now is that the Labour Party is drawing those women back in. And I think that it's quite likely that the Conservatives have been paying attention to this polling because this kind of, we're going to double free childcare from 15 hours to 30 hours in such a policy light um, campaign so far seems to me to be exactly about targeting that vote, which I think has relevance for UKIP because my big fear at the beginning of this election was that UKIP with Nigel Farage as a leader who's very unpopular amongst women, who said that women in the Ritz who are breastfeeding ought to go and do it in a corner and cover themselves up, who at one point was saying they should um, ban maternity leave. I thought he was going to pull the Conservatives to the right on gender equality. And if anything, what's happened is all the parties have been pulled to the left on gender equality and they're all fighting to be as feminist as they can. And I think it's because they're fighting for women's votes. So I think that's going to be an interesting part of the campaign. And what difference having the Greens and UKIP as real players is going to make because we know that men are more likely to vote for UKIP than women and women are more likely to vote Green and is that going to pull them apart a little bit? And that is it. Are you going to give us a projection? Oh, I've got to give you a projection. I think that um, Labour will form the government and Conservatives will be um, the largest party but I wonder if some of the suggestions that the SNP are going to take every single seat in Scotland may be a bit inflated. Okay. That's great. There's lots of good stuff in there, and I think we could easily then start discussing it. But I think um, we should just do our five minutes. So that was more than five minutes, but and then um, we'll have the dis we'll have the discussion uh, after that. So um, could you all try the five minutes? <laughs> well, I might take Rosie. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you ought to compensate now. Okay, so. Every now and then in the campaign, this dismal campaign, I've allowed myself to imagine Natalie, Nicola, Leanne and some Labour feminists leading four women in a progressive alliance. Of course, to quote Ed Miliband, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> but we don't have to give up on imagination. The Green Party's manifesto for the common good is written, apart from the appendix giving all its fiscal details, is written telling us, imagine, and it starts, a imagine a world of efficient and welcoming public services, coordinated action on climate change, equality, workers' rights, an economy that works for people and planet at a human scale, restorative justice, and real care for the future, including young people now. Who wouldn't be beguiled by these words? 
The problem for the Greens, I think, is that they're really caught up in a tension between this beguiling message, which has got real purchase on certain groups within society, and the electoral politics, which is inducing people to vote strategically. In the 2010 election, the Greens received only 1% of the vote. But since then, we've seen their membership surge. They're currently over 60,000, well ahead of UKIP and the Lib Dems. They have a core of committed supporters, many educated, young, middle-class, urban, cosmopolitan people, who they're encouraging to vote, not strategically, but for what they really believe in. And then there are the polls showing the green vote anywhere between 5 and 8%. Tonight there's a Moriipsos poll in the standard, putting the Greens on 8% the same as the Lib Dems. The problem for the Greens is among those who decide they won't just vote with their hearts, but they will vote strategically. <coughs> and there's been much made, particularly in the Observer and the um, Guardian recently, of some research done at Manchester University, which suggests that a green surge could hit Labour in 22 electoral battlegrounds. Now, the problem is that the Greens may well hold on to their single seat in Brighton Pavilion. They might just about even win Norwich South, but even with the best projections, they're not going to get more than two seats. However, their vote is quite widely distributed, and what really matters is who votes Green in which constituencies. The problem for Labour is less that it's directly competing with the Greens than that they're relying on winning back disaffected Liberal Democrats who may well be Green voters. In other words, those people, I have to say like me, who didn't vote Labour in the last two elections because of the Iraq war and would now be returning to Labour, as I am, but um, nevertheless may stay with the Greens. And this, this is the constituency which could therefore deny victories to the Lib Dems, for example, um, Nick Clegg in Sheffield Hallam, but could also rob Labour itself, it's reckoned, by up to 10 key seats. Um, my own constituency, Hornsey Wood Green, is one of those marginal seats. Um, where Labour has a 1% lead. It's currently held by Lynn Featherstone, the Lib Dem. And I think it's this, this is the classic seat that Lib, Labour absolutely has to win back. Um, and of course, the vote is so close that my recommendation would be Greens, hold your nose and vote red. In terms of predictions, I think I'm very safe to predict that we won't be seeing a green member of uh, a green prime minister in number ten on <laughs> May the eighth. Um, but in a perhaps in an ideal world, we will see those one or two green members of parliament holding the balance of power, along with other radical thinkers, and swinging the spectrum to the left. Thank you for that. Can you get? <coughs> Can you, can you do an, another prediction apart from the Greens not winning? <laughs> yeah, I think, I don't want to think this, but having looked at the standard tonight, I have a sickening feeling that in light of the utter cynicism um, of the parties on the right, that we may well end up with um, 
Tory minority government backed up by just enough uh, DUP supporters and UKIP to give us um, a new Tory administration. Well, that's good. I mean, it's good in the sense that we've now got two different predictions. <laughs> uh, well, that is, no, that's more interesting. Thanks very much for that. Jason? Uh, thanks, Tony. Um, I'm going to be rebellious and make my prediction uh, at the beginning, um, which is that there will be a landslide. Um, and that's a landslide for the SNP uh, in Scotland. Um, notwithstanding what Rosie said, which is right, they won't win every seat, but still they're going to win a hell of a lot of them uh, and take uh, a great deal off, off Labour. Um, so, this election campaign, I would agree, has been you know, particularly boring, um, but I do think there's a lot at, at stake, and what is at stake, I think, is the, the future of the, the British state, and the success of the SNP in Scotland, uh, and the possible influence that they will have in the next parliament, I think will hasten, uh, probably hasten, the breakup of the United Kingdom. Uh, if it doesn't lead to Scottish independence, it will certainly uh, lead to a political system uh, in the United Kingdom which looks significantly um, different. Um, so, you know, you have to say the SNP have played a, a blinder in Scotland by outlabouring Labour. This is why they've managed to attract so much um, support. Um, they have snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, given what happened in the in the referendum. I think many people immediately in the wake of their defeat expected them um, to go into decline as a political force, and clearly that hasn't um, happened. And what you can see amongst SNP supporters in, in Scotland um, is that even if they don't support um, independence now, uh, when they would have voted in the past, they're now turning to uh, the SNP uh, because um, they think that the SNP are the most effective force to combat uh, a conservative government um, in Westminster. Um, and this is how the SNP have played it. Vote for us and you won't get the, the Tories. And that chimes um, very well in Scotland. Um, so the goal remains central to the SNP of independence. Um, if they do well in the Westminster elections, they'll put them in a very good position next year in 2016 uh, to win a majority again in the Scottish elections. Nicola Sturgeon has refused uh, on a number of occasions to rule out um, a referendum, a further independence referendum, going into the SNP's manifesto for 2016. So independence is still very much on the cards for Scotland. And even if it's something less than independence, it's something that will profoundly disrupt the nature of, of the union. Okay? The SNP are campaigning in this election, in the Westminster election, for achieving full fiscal um, autonomy. Okay? Um, the deal that was done after the referendum um, between the, the parties in the, uh, in the Smith Agreement gives the Scots something less than full fiscal autonomy. But I can you know, tell you now that the SNP at Westminster will be doing everything they can to push and push whoever is in, in government to achieve that status uh, of full fiscal autonomy, particularly, of course, if it's a Labour government that the SNP are effectively keeping in power. 
if it's a conservative uh, victory, some kind of conservative government emerges, this just gives them um, more, uh, more ammunition for independence. Uh, again, it will boost their results in 2016 in Scotland, make uh, a second referendum more likely, and make independence um, more likely. Uh, and as I say, uh, if it's a Labour administration of some kind, they will exert extreme pressure, I think, to get full um, fiscal autonomy. Now, um, do we want the union or not? In a way, I'm kind of agnostic about that, that question. Um, but, you know, there are certain benefits from living in a large state, including benefits for the Scots. In many respects, um, having national sovereignty in the kind of world that we live, live in makes no real sense, right? The Scots had a great deal of economy, uh, autonomy over their economy and over public policy. Um, they could go on to do very well, but they would do very well in a transition in which the rest of the United Kingdom, England and Wales, still gave them more money than they could possibly raise in tax revenues um, if they had full fiscal autonomy. So, you know, I think what that, that points to um, is the possibility that if there's a Labour government with SNP support, what we might see is a new fundamental constitutional settlement. This, from certain people's perspective, would be the optimistic view where we see a radical decentralisation of power away from Westminster, not just to Scotland or, or Wales, but to uh, English cities and counties and, and regions. So I think that's the respect in which the SNP are important, and what happens in this election I think will be profoundly transformative uh, for the uh, British state. Thank you very much. Can I just press you again like the others? Oh, have I got a... Do you have uh, a... Okay. I, I'm with Diana. I mean, I think the... Um, it doesn't have to be that much movement to get the Tories to about 290. If the Liberal Dems do better than people expect and get about 30, that takes you to 320. Stick the DUP on there, it's 328, 329. That's enough for some kind of minority cobbled together, which will see Cameron through to his glorious referendum, when he will smash the European Union, or at least get very minor concessions, so it doesn't look embarrassing for him, then he can bow out. Uh, in a blaze of glory, and Boris Johnson will take over, which a prospect which thrills us all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got uh, two to one. Uh... Am I allowed to change my mind? No, <laughs> well, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> we wanted a lot more substantial than that. Okay. Uh, now, Ben, into that. Okay. Um, I think one of the areas where the election has actually got very interesting is in the kind of online sphere. Um, so I want to argue that there's four ways in which online interaction in the election could prove very significant. Um, three of which are blindingly obvious, which I'm going to go over very briefly, and one which is hidden and very scary. Um, there's now been six general elections in which there has been some sort of online presence. The first was 1992, when it was estimated there were a whole 10 websites dedicated to the general election. Every election since has been the internet election. 2005 <laughs> particularly, 2010 was the social media election, and this election is the Twitter election. So my one kind of proviso before I say this is that the internet is, as anyone who's done my digital politics course knows, an inherently disruptive, disruptive thing. 
But it isn't always disruptive in the same way. It disrupts the media, it disrupts how politicians work, it disrupts organisations. But the internet does not do one particular thing in a particular direction. And often the media and commentators want to tell you the internet is doing this thing. But it works differently in different contexts. Okay, so academic qualification out of the way. What the internet really has done is bring a wonderful big dollop of chaos and unpredictability to all sorts of events that shouldn't be chaotic and shouldn't be unpredictable. So change one is the effect on the media. As well you know, social media has a fantastic way of disrupting the mainstream media, bringing up new issues, turning issues that the media want put in a particular way inside out, and generally kind of creating storms and agenda setting um, all over the place. So I'll give you a few examples from the past week. I did not and could not predict that Ed Miliband would become more of a sex symbol during the election than before, particularly among 17-year-old girls. I've got to say that is a very big surprise. And even more of a surprise, it then led to a positive story in the Daily Mail about Ed Miliband. Another surprise this week was that Nicola Sturgeon got into rather a detailed discussion with her sister about whether it was a Cindy doll or a Barbie doll whose hair she used to cut off when they were young children. You may have seen the story from the 500 small businesses written by, <laughs> spontaneously by businesses to say that Labour government would be, be would be terrible for small businesses. And then some techie geeks take a look at it and they look in the metadata and they find that it was actually drafted at Tory central headquarters because they hadn't bothered to look into it and take it out. So just a few examples of how social media can disrupt and manipulate and change conventional media. There is a slight warning in here though. Before we all celebrate the fact that this is a weapon to empower us all against the nasty monolithic media, just hold on a minute. Because of course politicians are constantly manipulating Twitter, manipulating social media. You can actually buy Twitter followers. Fake Twitter followers called sock puppets and a number of leaders of different parties have been accused of doing so. Um, you can of course spread rumors online, you can try and set agendas through fake online movements, and there is even allegations that certain politicians have been changing the Wikipedia entries of other politicians. Um, so it's not always one good thing. The second effect is the direct voting effect. How does social media and the internet influence voters? Well, a YouGov poll found that a third of voters between 18 and 24 felt that they would be influenced in their vote by something they read on social media. That's very good. The immediate response is then, as we said earlier, but they don't often vote. Only around 25% of 18 24 year olds say they were certain to vote in the next general election. A little bit more interesting, open brackets scary, is the experiments done by Facebook in the United States. They did an experiment with 61 million Facebook users, and to a random sample of those Facebook users, they altered their newsfeed to show pictures of their friends who had voted. And that had a 0.39% effect on whether that person voted or not. Very small, but was among 61 million people. And it's a very close election. The third effect is the indirect effect. We often talk about the direct effect, whether the media message is hitting a person and changing their vote. But what's equally as important is indirect voter mobilization. It's, I don't know if it's depressing or interesting that your family and friends still remain one of the key influences on how you vote. 
And one of the great things that social media can do is get people to persuade other people how to vote. The Miller fans, doesn't matter, they're 17, but they've all got parents. <coughs> they've all got friends. And they've all got people that they can talk to about what they think about Ed Miliband. However much you may not agree with it. Um, and then you get the idea of sending on jokes, sending on links, sending on something interesting. New ways of what they call e-expressive participation. Russell Brand, sorry, I didn't mean to return to him, but I think it's very important. It was worth a visit by Ed Miliband. Russell Brand has 10 million followers on Twitter. If 1%, 1% of those 10 million followers retweets two positive things about Ed Miliband, that's 200,000 positive messages on Twitter. If 10% of them do, that's 2 million positive things said on Twitter about Ed Miliband. Definitely worth a visit to Russell Brand, whatever happened. Okay, so they're all the positive things. Disruption, giving us power, giving us influence, Millie fans, etc. Here's the scary bit. While we look at all of the razzmatazz and the interest in the Twitter storms, um, underneath it, the election is being fought on databases and spreadsheets and analytics. And this was the real lesson of Obama's campaign for all the Twitter, yes we can, Facebook organization. The reason that he won in 2012 was because he identified as much possible information as he could about swing voters and he hit them with emails and phone calls long in advance of Romney even getting started. He'd convince them to vote for him months in advance. And this is where the really interesting things happen in the election, where you've got databases, data mining, analysis of people in marginal constituencies. So in the 92, 94 constituencies that are actually up for grabs, you have an intense amount of data mining, analytics, all sorts of preferences on everything people like, any information that the political parties can get hold of from anywhere, more or less within the bounds of the Data Protection Act, but I think there might be some interesting issues after the election about this. And they're gathering all the data they can. If you live in the 556 seats that aren't up for grabs, then they're not interested in your, and it's most likely the political parties have virtually no data. So one interesting aspect from this is that there's a new digital divide of having a massive information about a very small number of voters and no information about any others. Um, so they're the four ways in which I hope the internet has made the election more interesting. Um, it's made it more disruptive, more chaotic, more unpredictable, which is sort of what I hope elections should be. But the warning sign is these big issues of privacy, not just about political parties, but just referring back to what I said earlier about Facebook. And there's a very interesting uh, discussion beginning about, okay, so Facebook can they encourage you to vote. Could they encourage you who to vote for? Labour minority. <laughs> with a <coughs> choreographed dance with the SNP where there's a kind of fake disagreement, which is then overcome to appease the Daily Mail. My one concern is that even though Labour could be a minority government, there is enough of a narrative about somehow that the SNP is illegitimate, that somehow it's unfair for Scottish voters to vote for MPs and send them to Westminster and them to have an influence, when it was fine for Thatcher, of course, to, do, to govern Scotland without any seats there. But there is a growing kind of sense among the right-wing media that um, 
that there could be a kind of illegitimacy issue raised. And when I wake up at five o'clock in the morning, I worry that there could be some sort of play there for uh, the Conservative minority government. Thanks very much indeed. That's great. Um, and then finally, Eric and UK. Okay, I'm just going to, I felt that I had to show you some, some maps and charts here because um, it's the only way I can give this presentation. Um, now let's see if this works. So, you know, it's the Twitter handle there, by the way. I'm very digital. Um, but, uh, but, but anyhow, the, the point of this is that why I think actually Labour uh, is going to be winning in the minority. Labour and the SNP will be forming the government. And one of the main reasons for that is UKIP. Um, and so I'm going to just talk uh, about uh, a little more about UKIP and its effect. The UKIP effect, as you probably garnered, is not going to be through the number of seats they get. It's going to be due to their effect on the balance between the Tories and Labour in marginal seats. And I'm not, just, I'm not going to say much about how I've done this, but essentially there's two scenarios that I want to run you through. One is UKIP support falls to zero, which of course it won't. Uh, and the other, equally I think unrealistic, is that UKIP support falls from its current poll number of around 14% to half, or about 7%. And the question we want to ask is, what's that going to do to um, the final count in terms of seats? And so what I've done is I've looked at um, national level polls, the Ashcroft's polls, and also the British election study, both of which allow you to see who did UKIP voters vote for in 2010. So the question is, how are we going to allocate those UKIP votes to the main parties in doing this kind of a calculation? <coughs> And we've got about 1,500 UKIP voters in the Ashcroft polls and about 12,000 in the British election three, study three ways. Then we're going to look at the 130 constituency polls polled by Ashcroft, the marginal seats that Ben was talking about, and say, well, how many of those seats are going to tip away from the, or, or tip back to the Conservatives if we cut UKIP support? And, uh, and so this is really the exercise that I'm going to go through. And this is an example of the kinds of Ashcroft polls that are done. They ask, you intend to vote UKIP, who did you vote for in 2010? And what that shows is essentially 45% of those intending to vote UKIP voted for the Tories in 2010, compared to about 29% for the Lib Dems and 21% for, or thereabouts, for Labour. So a big slant in terms of ex-Tories compared to ex-Labour. It's almost two to one in the Ashcroft polls. In the British election study, it's four to one. So I'm going to say three ex-Tories for every ex-Labour in terms of UKIP voters. So one message is that UKIP is really acting as a spoiler for the Tories. And if we, if we run that calculation, essentially if UKIP didn't exist, the Tories would win about 15 marginal seats. Uh, if UKIP disappeared, um, because some of those, those wins, some of the, the seats that the Tories would gain would be at the expense of the Lib Dems, it somewhat cancels out the power uh, in terms of the Tory coalition. So between them, Tory and Lib Dem would rise by 11, Labour would fall by 11. But that would be enough to swing uh, the election from what I see as the current picture, <coughs> which is essentially roughly 330 seats for the left coalition, including SNP, Labour, and others, and about 314 for the right. 
and that would go to 325 for the right, which is Tory Lib Dem DUP to 319 for the left. So that the UKIP factor is an enormously important for this election. No UKIP, the Tories are in. Because of UKIP, the Tories will be out. That's sort of my prediction. Um, but now we can ask, well, okay, UKIPs aren't going to fall. They're not going to fall to zero. But what if they fall to half? Um, you know, they're on 14%, I'm assuming. Um, you know, if UKIP's vote share is half, what does that do to those marginal races? And interestingly, the message here is, and this is just, I'm toying with the Guardian's forecast numbers to say, well, um, so in the, in the current poll, you've got 273 for the Tories, 268 for Labour on this um, Guardian forecast, 55 SNP. That puts uh, the left coalition ahead of the Tories, UKIP, DUP, and uh, Lib Dems. Now let's say UKIP loses half their support. It's still not enough. It's still going to be the left coalition winning 326, 318. So long and short is even if UKIP's vote were to dramatically fall, that still wouldn't give the Tories enough to form a coalition with the Lib Dems and, and move ahead. So my argument on this one is um, it ain't going to happen for Dave. Um, now, however, there are some, there are some polls that, that show a more positive picture for Cameron. This is the Ladbrokes, 283 for, for, for the Tories, 270 for Labour. Um, the only thing I would say about, and it is true that if you then take a half UKIP scenario, that pushes um, the Tories and the Lib Dems just enough over the, the hump that they win 325, 319, uh, and they form the government. However, again, I'm skeptical, not only because UKIP isn't going to lose half its support, uh, all of the polling suggests that the proportion of people who say they are highly certain or quite certain to vote UKIP is the majority of current UKIP voters. They're not going to dry up and suddenly tactically defect, I don't believe. Uh, and also, that high poll for the Tories already builds in a certain amount of UKIP defection. And finally, the third thing is, to the extent that UKIP, or to the extent that uh, the Tories increase their uh, seat total, that's not only going to be at the expense of Labour, but also at the expense of the Lib Dems. So there's going to be a certain extent to which that, even though the Tories may gain, they're also going to lose a little, because their partner, the Lib Dems, are going to go down a bit. So it's going to be very difficult, I think, for the Tories, together with the Lib Dems, to get enough votes uh, to win. Um, and just to say something about UKIP, and, and a lot of noise has been made about this, the concentration of UKIP support in uh, the east of England, the Thames estuary, and various other places. But the, the point I think was made, I don't know who made it, about <coughs> the spread of votes. UKIP's got the most dispersed vote of any of the parties. Whereas the Lib Dems, because of their local connections, have got a very clustered vote. Nothing like Clyde Cymru or the SNP, but still relatively clustered. And what seems to have happened, therefore, is that the valuable coalition partner, which is the Lib Dems for the Tories, has seen them, their vote shrink a lot. So they've got, they're a seat rich partner, and instead the Tories have acquired on the right a seat poor partner in UKIP who can't generate much for their relatively high share of the vote. And in, now, just this is the last thing I'm going to say, and that is that what a vote, well, what a win for uh, Labour and the SNP might mean is a, a resurgence of English nationalism because. You could have a situation where the, the right parties plus the Lib Dems have close to 60% of the vote, or at least in the upper 50s, 
and still be out of power, not only for this election, but also for future elections, for a number of elections. And I might, if we have time, I'll talk about what happened in Canada on this. Uh, so this then, there is a risk of an even sharper English nationalist populism that is anti-Scotland, anti-EU, anti-immigration. The anti-EU and anti-immigration concerns will not be allayed in this government at all or addressed. And therefore, I think we have the makings of uh, or, or a, a fertile environment for the rise of, of English nationalism um, in the event, as I see it, of a Labour SNP government. Thanks very much. Yeah. Well, that's all pretty clear, isn't it? <laughs> right, we're going to have a Labour minority government. We're going to have a Tory minority government. We're going to have another Tory minority government. Then we're going to have a Labour minority government. And then we're going to have a left coalition, um, which is essentially means Labour and SNP uh, doing a deal uh, of some kind, uh, or not. Well, I didn't mean SNP in government, but uh, confidence and supply. So there we are. Um, I think we'll go straight into, I mean, I think all that is interesting and, and we, should, we should discuss. So shall we go straight to discussion and you can ask whatever you like and we'll see who wants to. Yeah.